0: All right, now we come down to chapter 3 here. In chapter 3, Hosea found out that his wife had proved unfaithful, but he's commanded to go and take Gomer again. Notice what he says, Then said the Lord unto me, Go yet, love a woman, that is your wife, she's your woman, love a woman, beloved of her friend, you love her, though she's been unfaithful, yet she's an adulteress according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel who look to other gods and love cakes of raisin. That is, they love that which was part of the heathen worship of idols, the cakes of raisins. Actually, they were used in the sacrificial feast of the Canaanites of that day. And the children of Israel have adopted that. You can see God's making the application. He says to this man, Hosea, now you know how I feel. I want you to go and take Gomer again. She's been unfaithful to her, but you love her, and you take her back. And God says, that's what I'm going to do with my people. Israel's been unfaithful to me, but I haven't cast her overboard. I'm going to punish her, but I have not gotten rid of them by any means. Now, will you notice what he says, verse 2? So I bought her for myself. Now, apparently... She would sold herself to some group of racketeers that were running brothels in that land, and he had to go buy her back. And I bought her for myself. And do you know that you and I have been redeemed? That picture's not very pretty. That's the reason it's not being preached more today. You can hear more today, even in fundamental circles or conservative circles, about dedication, about commitment, and about the fact that you are to Turn your life over to the Lord, and you're to do this. My friend, the first thing you have to do is to come as a sinner to God. He has to redeem you, just as this man went and bought this harlot. That's the way God redeemed you, and he redeemed me. And until you and I see that, we haven't seen anything at all. We haven't even gotten to first base until we see this. And he says, so I bought her for myself, For fifteen pieces of silver and for a homer of barley and a half homer of barley. And she wasn't worth it. And you and I not worth the redemption price because we were not redeemed with gold or silver or precious stones, but with the precious blood of Christ. He had to shed his blood. He had to suffer and die that you and I might be redeemed today. Why? Because we were lost sinners, sold under sin. If you please. We better learn to start there, friends. I heard a man, and he's a friend of mine. I heard him bring a message. I think he's a great preacher, but he's got so He doesn't mention the gospel. He didn't mention the fact that you have to come as a sinner. Oh, he told him I ought to love Jesus. You ought to serve God. You ought to obey him and all that sort of thing. But friends, that's not where you begin. We are dead in trespasses and sins. And you just well go out the graveyard and say, listen, fellas and girls, let's all of us start doing better. Let's all of us start committing our life to the Lord. We have no life to commit. Everybody out there is dead. They can't do anything. And you and I are dead in trespasses and sins until that matter is settled and we are born again. We receive a new nature. We haven't got anywhere at all. Now, he says, and I said unto her, Thou shalt abide for me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot. Thou shalt not be for another man. So will I also be for thee. And a man told me a sad story not too long ago of how he found out that his wife was unfaithful to him and how he actually followed her. And he uh, apparently had a detective. Imagine the feeling of that man or... What a heartbreak it was to him to find out that she was unfaithful to him. Well, my friend, I can't think of anything worse than that. It broke up a home. It'll break up a home. But God says to his people, that's what you've been doing. You've been playing the harlot. You have gone after other gods, and you've turned from me, and you no longer serve me. Oh, you call me Lord. And the Lord Jesus said, many are going to say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, I'll say I didn't know you. Now, I'm going to say now, probably the strongest thing that you've ever heard, and there's not one of these rock rib fundamentalists even that criticizes me today. He's never said anything this strong. Did you know that in a church, that is a building that has a steeple on it and a bell in it and a pulpit and a man stands up there who denies the Word of God, denies the deity of Christ, and denies that he died for sinners, and the people attend there and support that sort of thing. Do you know what you have? You don't have a church. You have a brothel, a spiritual brothel, my friend, and that's all in the world it is. And I didn't say that. God says that right here. This is the strongest language you can imagine. And you can understand why Hosea was not elected the man of the year in Israel at that particular time. He didn't win the popularity contest in his hometown. You can be sure of that. Why? Because that's exactly what he's telling his people. You have become a brothel as a nation as you've turned to idolatry and turned from the living and true God. Now he said as a result, and I consider we've come to probably the most important verses Right now, for these students of prophecy today that are beginning to set dates. Verse 4 and 5. In fact, I want to give you a quotation from Dr. Charles Feinberg, who is a Jewish believer and is an outstanding Bible scholar today, Hebrew scholar. He says this, speaking of Hosea and of this chapter, it rightfully takes its place among the greatest prophetic pronouncements "...in the whole revelation of God." Well, may I say to you that I have to agree with him on that. And by the way, in connection with it, you ought to read the 11th chapter of Romans. And you will find that you have here the past dealings of God with Israel, his present dealings with Israel... And his future dealings, many of you that have our book on Romans and were with us when we went through Romans, you will recall that I consider chapter 9, 10, and 11 being the dispensational section, deals with the nation Israel, and you have in the ninth chapter the past of Israel, and in the 10th the present of Israel, and in chapter 11 the future for the nation Israel. Now, these two verses right here, you've got this all compacted into one. And they say, what, precious things come in little packages? Well, may I say that powerful things do too. Take the atom bomb and take these two verses here. They're tremendous verses. Now, in the fourth verse, he says, "...for the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king." If you'll notice, it doesn't give the number of days. And this is unusual because the children of Israel were told they were to be put out of that land three times and they would be returned three times. And each time God put them out of that land, He told them how long they would be out except the last time. Now, He said, First, to Abraham. I'm going to put your children out of the land. I'm going to give you this land. It's yours. But I'll put you out of the land for 430 years down in the land of Egypt. Then you're going to come back. And they did. That was fulfilled, literally. Jeremiah said to them, because of your sin, you're going to be sent into captivity to Babylon. You'll be down there 70 years. Now... Hosea speaking to the northern kingdom because they actually never return. And there's many days. They'll abide many days. Well, how long is many days? Well, right now we have some that are saying that the Lord's going to come by 2000 A.D. And I don't know where they get that. I always feel like these fellows must have a private line into heaven. And I don't have, and I guess maybe I'm a little jealous because I'd like to have that private line also, or at least know what the number is. But they got the number. Some say now 2,000, and there are others saying, I know one, I have a tape of a message he gave, and he says that this generation living today is the one that's going to see the coming of Christ. I'd like to know where you get that. May I say to you, that sounds good today to a lot of untaught Christians. And those that are sensational mongers today, and we have those. We have a lot of prophecy mongers about today. But the children of Israel shall abide many days. How many days? And why didn't the Lord give the number here? Because in this interval, while they're out of the land... And they went out in 70 AD, and they actually have never returned to the land according to the word of God. Now, hear me very carefully, because this is very important to see. They have returned to the land today, and it's remarkable what has happened over there. But it's not the fulfillment of prophecy, because the prophecy says when they return, they'll return to God. And it's the belief now of several outstanding prophetic students, that is, two men I know, that believe they may be put out of that land again before you have really the fulfillment of prophecy of their return to the land as a nation. And when they return, they'll return to God. Now, will you notice here, they have no king. The children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, without a prince. We mentioned that. And without a sacrifice, now a great many people are saying to me, they said, well, Dr. McGee, you have quoted the scripture in Luke 21 that Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. We must be at the end because now Israel has Jerusalem. Now, guess where I want you to hear me very carefully? So easy today to jump to conclusions, you see. Now, I want to say, first of all, I believe we're living in the last days. And somebody says, well, you mean then the Lord will be coming soon? I don't know how soon, because we've been in the last days for 1900 years. And the Lord Jesus said, behold, I come quickly. And that is 1,900 years ago. So I'm not prepared to say it'll be tomorrow or next week or next year or in this century. I just don't happen to know. But I do believe we see the setting of a stage today when action will begin when the church is removed from this earth. Now, the reason the date's not given here is that the church is dateless, nameless, timeless. You see, we're a heavenly people, have no name, but some of you folk thought it was Baptist and some others of you thought the name of the church was Presbyterian and even some of you thought it was Methodist and some of you thought it was independent. But I have news for you. Church has no name. Never was given a name. Ecclesia just means a called out body. And he's calling out a body. that's going to be his bride. I could make a suggestion to you. The church in the parable of the Pearl of Great Price The church is, I think, the pearl that this merchant man, Jesus, came and he bought it. And he paid a big price for the church. And I'm not going into that today other than to say this, that the word for pearl is margarites. And if the church has any name at all, it's Margaret. (laughs) That may astound you. I bet you never heard of a church that was named Margaret, the Margaret Church. Somebody says, what church you go to? I told a fellow one time, I said, I go to the Margaret Church. He thought, I was kidding him. I really was serious about it. I think that's the name of it. And it was down here, Dateless. If you had met Simon Peter an hour before the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, why, and you'd said, do you know what's going to happen here in a little while? He'd said, no, what's going to happen? He didn't know. Church came in existence, Dateless. The birth was announced, but not the date of it. And at the time of the rapture, you are not given any date concerning it. And because of that, the children of Israel are going to abide many days. Without a king, without a prince, without a sacrifice. Now, let's come back to this. Do they have Jerusalem today? Well, may I say this to you? All of the holy places in Jerusalem, old Jerusalem, are in the hands of either the Muslims Either the Russian Catholic, the Greek Catholic, the Armenian church, or the Roman Catholic. And they've all built cathedrals or churches over all these spots. And Israel doesn't have them. Israel doesn't dare touch those sacred spots. I said to a guide that I got acquainted with, and he's become a Jewish friend of mine. I said to him, why don't you go up there? You've got Jerusalem now. And tear down that mosque of Omar and put up a temple. He says, what do you want us to do to start World War III? It'll sure start it, friends. be no question about that. May I say to you, they don't have the temple area. They don't have a sacrifice today. The only place they've gotten to is the Weeping Wall. They're still at the Weeping Wall, friends. That's where they are today. And they do not have a sacrifice except the one that we have today. And that's when Jesus died. 1,900 years ago, outside the city but he has been raised from the dead, and he's at God's right hand. They do not have a sacrifice and without an image. Now, the idea here of an image is the fact that God didn't give them, very frankly. God never gave them any images, if you'll notice, no likeness at all. But He did give them many things, for instance, without an ephod or without teraphim. And teraphim are these little things that they carried around, little objects. And actually, they were little idols that they were carrying around, and they began to worship those things. Now, God says they're going to get away from idolatry. They won't have an image. And there's one thing you can say about Israel over there. They're not in idolatry. They've not turned to God, but they certainly have turned away from idolatry. Now, he says here, afterward. Now, afterward doesn't mean 2000 A.D. I don't know when it is. Afterward shall the children of Israel return. Now, they are going to return. And when they return, this is the way they'll return to the land. "...and seek the Lord their God, and David their king, and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days." Now, the latter days are yet in the future, because I think the latter days here refers to the nation Israel. And it refers, beginning with the great tribulation, goes through the second coming of Christ into the millennium, so that they've returned, but they have not turned to the Lord." Now, I'm going to say something to you that's very startling, because my last trip over there, I learned more than any trip I ever took before. And this is one of the things that we can not only show you, but we can demonstrate it. Over there, there's no turning to God at all. Well, when they celebrated, for instance, some time ago, their anniversary, they had a big motto. I have a picture of it. It says, that science will bring peace to this land. Well, I thought the Messiah was going to. But they're not turning to the Messiah. It's to science. Now they've added something to that. And that is prosperity. That is economics. And while we were over there, while they were having a great economic conference, one of the Rockefellers was there. One of the Fords was there. And a hundred outstanding men put up a million dollars each to invest in that land, and they said they just wanted a hundred. They could have had five hundred. And they're building over there like mad. You've never seen anything like it. Now, may I say this to you? Economics today is that. And there are two missionaries that I know over there that I consider very reputable. And these two missionaries have made this very clear. One of them, and he was asked the specific question, how many really Christians are there in this land today? Now, this man is an intelligent man. He speaks several languages. He's been a professor over there. And he's become a Christian and he's doing missionary work. And he made this statement. There are less than 300 Israelites that are real believers in Israel today. Now, that I know is going to cause a great deal of discussion and disagreement for the very simple reason that there are some that are giving out propaganda today that hundreds are turning to Christ in that land. That just does not happen to be true. Now, there are actually more Arab Christians in Israel than there are Jewish Christians. That may also amaze you. And there are fine works among Arabs that are being carried on over there today. But missionary work in Israel is really a tough job. And there are very few missionaries over there to tell the truth. So that they have not returned to God today. And this prophecy... Right here, this verse 5 is an evidence of the fact that this present return to the land is not the fulfillment of the Word of God. Now, I know this is different than what you're hearing today. But have you ever heard any of these folk take the prophecy of Hosea or any of the prophets? And we take the whole book, friends, so we have to face up to it. They don't. They can always edge around these verses like this, and you can pull out a few verses, that say, well, we've got this ridiculous thing going. And I mentioned only two. We heard some time ago that they were shipping Indiana stone over to Israel to build a temple. Now, if you've been to Jerusalem and to that land, you know one thing that they don't need is stone. Jerusalem is on a rocky place. And every hill around it, including The Mount of Olives are just loaded with rocks. Now, if Indiana wants to buy some stone, I can tell them where they can get it. Israel would be glad to export stone. Now, there's another prophecy that they talk about. They say, now, oranges are growing in that land, and that means that these are the strange slips that Isaiah said would grow in that land. Well, may I say to you, the orange tree, and that land is not a strange slip. Actually, in the Song of Solomon, where it speaks of apples, the apple tree, it's the orange tree. Oranges grow in that land, and it's a belief now of some that oranges were taken from there to Spain, and from Spain to Florida and to California, and today, that's the land that grows oranges, and they're not a strange slip, my beloved. How ridiculous these things are becoming today. Friends, let's stay close to the Word of God, and if we do, we will not become one of these prophetic fanatics that are abroad in the land today. Now, I've spent a long time on this passage of Scripture, five verses, and somebody says, my. But do you see how important it is? These last two verses are very important. Now, we're not going to be talking anymore, or not very much at least, about Hosea's private personal life. We're moving now into the beginning here with verse 4 of chapter 3. We move into the prophetic section. And when we get here to chapter 4, where we're coming to right now, we're finding we're in the prophetic section. And he's going to talk a great deal about the faithless nation now that has been playing the harlot. Just as the church today, there are a lot of wonderful churches. Don't misunderstand me. Oh, they're wonderful, fundamental churches across this land. Thank God for them. But liberalism has taken over in so many places today, outstanding places, and the gospel is not given. And I say again... God says this nation has become a brothel and you're a bunch of prostitutes. What do you think Jesus would say today to his church? He walk in some of the churches today. I think he'd call them brothels. My friend, may I say to you that this is very strong language and it's going to be too strong for some folk. They've already tuned me out. Now, chapter 4. And in chapter 4 and 5, we have Israel plays the harlot. And here in chapter 4, we have Israel guilty of lawlessness, immorality, ignorance of God's word, and idolatry. Now, I believe that you could put that down today on this nation in which we live. These are the sins of the nation. Now, it's true that the nation Israel was God's chosen people. And he gave the law to them. But let's understand one thing, that his pattern for any nation that wants to be blessed is along the same line. And therefore, we find here this nation guilty of the same thing, or our nation, that the nation Israel was when God judged them and sent them into captivity. Now, somebody will disagree with me and said, well, we're not idolaters." Well, covetousness is idolatry. And I do not know of a nation that is more greedy, more worshiping the almighty dollar, and believe me, it's not worth worshiping today, than this nation of ours. May I say to you, the judgment of God was upon this nation. But we might read this and point our finger at them and say it, it is a shame about how they turn from God look around you today and see if the same thing may not be true of us today. Now, I would just like to back up for just a moment, therefore, to chapter 3 at verse 1, because this, I believe, is very important. Here we read again, Then said the Lord unto me, Go yet, love a woman beloved of her friend. Yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Now, four times in this little verse here, you have the word love mentioned. Great many people think you have to get to the New Testament before you find anything about love. I believe that if you'd examine it carefully, you'd probably find that there's more said about love in the Old Testament than in the New. That is because, of course, the Old Testament is much longer and there's more of it than we have of the New Testament. But it is interesting to note that there's a great deal about love. Now, I was thinking that this first verse here is actually an equation, a mathematical equation. And it puts it like this. God's love equals Israel's sin. And I shouldn't say equal, but God's love times Israel's sin equals Hosea's love times Gomer's sin. So you see that we do have an equation here. And out of that home, he comes now to speak to the nation and he knows how God feels about them. Now, everything up to this point has been in the way of generalization. God has said they've sinned, that they have played the harlot. They've been unfaithful to him. Now he's going to spell it out. And you can make a comparison, actually, between this particular chapter and the first chapter of Isaiah. And you ought to compare it there, because Isaiah spoke to the southern kingdom and then he spelled out God's charge against the nation. Now, here, again, God brings them into court. He makes certain charges, and he proves them. That is the message of chapter 4. In fact, chapters 4 and 5, he's saying now to Israel, you are playing the harlot. And Israel, in this chapter, is guilty of lawlessness, immorality, ignorance of God's word, and idolatry. And we see here in this first verse, the Lord confronts Israel with the fact that they have no knowledge of God. And then in verse 2, he spells out their specific sins. Now, here in this first verse of chapter 4, The Lord confronts Israel with the fact that they have no knowledge of God. And then in verse 2, he spells out their specific sins. Now, will you listen to it? Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel. For the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. Now, he says these three things here. There's no truth, there's no mercy, and there's no knowledge of God in the land. In other words, these people have been brainwashed with idolatry. And as a result, there was actually no mercy. And God had instructed them to be merciful. In fact, he said, when the stranger comes into your land... And the poor, they are permitted to go in and glean. And God says, I take care of them this way, and you're to do this. Why? Because he says, I am the Lord, your God, and I'm a holy God. They'd forgotten that. They were no longer being merciful. And there was actually no knowledge of God in the land. Oh, there's a great deal of religion, but no knowledge of God in the land. Now they were breaking the Ten Commandments. Listen to this. By swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out and blood toucheth blood. Now, each one of these things that he mentions, they were breaking the Ten Commandments. Go back to the 20th of Exodus and read it. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And all of this was even among their relatives, blood-touching blood. They were committing all of these sins. They actually were breaking the Ten Commandments. I want to say something very carefully at this time. And will you listen very carefully? God gave the Ten Commandments which is only part of the Mosaic system, to the nation Israel. But in that, God expresses his will. The church today is not put under the Ten Commandments as a way, that is, that is not living the Christian life if all you do is keep the Ten Commandments. Now, that doesn't mean you break them. It just simply means he's called you to a higher plane, and you're called to live in the power of the Spirit of God. Now, God is not asking the unsaved world anything. But he does have a great deal to say about nations. And the nation Israel that he chose and dealt with them furnishes a pattern to the other nations of the world. Now, we have had what has been so-called a Christian civilization in Europe. It never was really Christian, but... It had the semblance of it. The laws were patterned after this, and these are laws for a nation. I shall not kill, I shall not commit adultery. Among those are other things. God condemned drunkenness, God condemned homosexuality, and He has the strongest language for that. He says, when a people or an individual indulges in that, and I don't care what you call it, my friend. God says he gave them up. He gave up this nation. They were guilty of that. They were guilty of indulging in these sins. We today are guilty of the same thing. There's no knowledge of God in this land. Oh, I know there's a church on every corner, and Sunday morning you can hear church bells everywhere. But, of course, a very small percentage of the population go to church. And very few are actually being reached with the Word of God. There is a Gideon Bible in every hotel room and motel room in this country. As far as I know, the first thing I do is when I go to a new hotel or a new motel to stay, I look around for the Gideon Bible. And I've noticed recently it's been out on the table, that is, It's been out and opened up so you can see it. Now, I do not know how much it's being read. The Gideons say they receive many letters telling of conversion. But I'm sure that a great many of those Bibles are not ever opened. I know I've been to several places where I'm convinced that the Bible had never been opened before. We are a nation of biblical ignoramuses. We do not know the word of God today in this land. But the Watergate hearings in Washington certainly turned the spotlight on our government and actually not the one political party, but to both political parties that there is corruption in this land of ours. And I wasn't quite sure whether all of the liars were sitting in the witness stand or were on the other side on the committee. And I think you'll find them in both parties. I think that you'll find corruption today in this land in both parties. And the chairman of the committee, I was greatly disappointed in him, the way he not only misquoted Scripture, he misinterpreted it and said that the four Gospels contradicted each other. And that went out on television. And may I say to you, I, for one, protest that because I felt like demanding equal time, everybody else demands equal time to answer that, that there is no contradiction in the four Gospels. And when a man says that, he reveals a woeful ignorance of the Word of God. Now, I'm saying all of this to say this, that our land is in this same kind of a condition that these people were in in that day. I'm going to take just one Particular phase. We're told that a few years ago, that in Washington, there were 128 cocktail parties every day. And again, the spotlight that's been turned on this hearings reveals that there's drinking, probably in Washington. It couldn't be more in Los Angeles, but there's been a great deal of it there. Now, I want to share with you today some facts and figures. And there are a few brave editors today in this country, but most of it's the liberal press. They follow one particular line, and just like Israel was brainwashed, our nation today is being brainwashed by nothing in the world but propaganda and liberalism. But down in San Diego, the local paper down there had a headline, and this goes back to January the 11th, 1972, It was on the front page of the paper, bottom of the page, but it was a headline, Alcoholics Cost Area Businesses $10 Million. May I say to you, people cry out about the high cost of living, cry out about the high cost of war and high cost of government. All of that is true. But who's crying out against liquor today? No one's crying out against it, and yet... Right here in Los Angeles, they say that in this country there are nine million American workers who are alcoholics, and 450,000 of them are in Los Angeles County. What do you suppose that has to do with what you buy at the store today? They say, "'Preacher, this is none of your business.'" It's my business in several different ways, and I wish there were more crying out against this sort of thing. The pulpit's become extremely silent in these matters, and when I go to the store, I'm paying a higher price for things because government and the nation, we're engaged in gross immorality today, breaking these Ten Commandments, you don't get by with it as a nation these. Commandments have been the basis of every so-called Christian civilization. And I'm not going to debate that point with anyone. And it's estimated that half of the 55,000 deaths on U.S. highways and streets were the result of alcohol drinking. My, we had protests about the killing in Vietnam. There was more killing by alcohol in accidents And I found nobody leading a protest in front of a brewery or the cocktail lounge. It's estimated that $15 billion is spent today for alcoholic beverage. Now, will you listen to this? Today, they're saying alcoholism is a disease. And this has been answered by a doctor. He says, alcoholism, a disease... If so, listen to this, it's the only disease contracted by an act of the will. It's the only disease that is habit-forming. It's the only disease that comes in a bottle. It's the only disease causing hundreds of thousands of family disruptions. It's the only disease promoting crime and brutality. It's the only disease contributing to hundreds of thousands of automobile accidents. It is the only disease playing a major part in over 50% of the more than 50,000 annual highway deaths. It is the only disease which is sold by license. It's the only disease that's bought in grocery stores, drug stores, and wellmarked retail outlets. It's the only disease that is taxed by the government. And on and on, there's more to this. I'll just read that to you today. May I say to you, our eyes are shut to this because we've been brainwashed and the liquor interests have this tremendous control today. And as a result, our nation sinks lower and lower. Because we have what's called a new morality, and wasn't new at all. Israel was practicing it way back yonder in about 700 B.C., and I wouldn't call it new morality back there by any means. They were breaking all these commandments, and God condemned them for it. And homosexuality was practiced even back as far as Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the reason he destroyed these places. He judged them. And today, actually, some of the legislatures filled with men ignorant of the word of God, ignorant of this thing which has been basic for this nation of ours, and they pass legislation that makes it so that two homosexuals can get married. And today that they are to be brought into society and they are to be treated as a disease. My friend, is this the crowd that we want to bring into society today? The liberal church says that we should not consider them sinners. And I know I speak to many homosexuals. I'll get letters on this. May I say to you, the Lord Jesus Christ says that you've got to be born again and he can deliver you from it. These things are not diseases today, but when they're treated as what they really are, sin, then God can deal with us. We are doomed as a nation, as much as Israel was condemned and sent into captivity. And after all, they were God's chosen people. We are not. By any stretch of the imagination, we can't make that claim. But this is the basis on which God judges nations. I spent a little time there, and I got warmed up on that. I think somebody today needs to be saying something along this line, but the pulpit is strangely silent in this connection. Well, one reason they never study Hosea. you know here's one of the forgotten prophets now I'm going to keep on reading verse three: therefore shall the land mourn, and every everyone that dwelleth in it shall languish with the beasts of the field, with the fowls of the heavens, yea, the fish of the sea also shall be taken away. The land will languish. And all of a sudden we found out that we're polluting everything today. When I was a boy, I went swimming in a swimming hole in a creek in southern Oklahoma that was as clear you could see, 25 feet to the bottom. My friend, may I say to you, it smells to high heaven. We've polluted the land today. The land here is mourning. And then another very interesting thing is, a few years ago it was plenty. All of the granaries were filled with grain. It was plenty of everything. And may I say today, we're hearing something about scarcity. You see, when God judges a nation, the land is involved, and even the beasts and the fowls have to suffer for the sin of man. And they are suffering also today because of man's sin. Verse 4. Yet let no man strive, nor reprove another, for thy people are as they that strive with the priest. What has happened? Why, the priest in that day was not doing his duty, not warning the people. And God had raised up the prophet. What about that? Verse 5. Therefore shalt thou fall in the day, and the prophet shall fall with thee in the night, and I will destroy thy mother. That is the nation. Why? Because now even there were the false prophets that were rising up and telling people, well, everything's going to be all right. This thing's going to work out. We live in a new day. The Bible is an old book and the Ten Commandments. They belong to the past, to our grandfathers and grandmothers. But we today have reached a very high plane. May I say to you, we are a dirty lot. We have sunk very low today as a nation and as a people. Now, verse 6 is probably one of the most quoted verses. It's considered to be one of the most familiar verses. I'm reading now Hosea 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. That's the reason we're teaching the Bible today. That's the reason we're going into a book like this, is because, my friend, It's the ignorance of the Word of God. They're destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I'll also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me. You see, God intended the whole nation to be priests unto him. And in the millennium, they will be that. But God says, you're not even going to have priests at this particular time. Seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. That is, even the people of the nation. Now, God says, I will also forget you because you've forgotten me. In other words, they've come to the time of judgment because they've gone through a long, sordid history of departing from the Lord. Now, the minute that, Christian friend, you get away from the word of God, you could not live a triumphant Christian life by any means. You could not live well-pleasing to the Lord. And I do not care how many of these method conferences you go to that have all these little gimmicks that if you do this and do that and do the other thing, that things are going to work all right for you in your home and in your place of business and in your social life, and everything will work out right. My friend, the Word of God makes it very clear. That's not by these little gimmicks, these little methods. It's by our knowledge of the Word of God. Now, that is as clear as the noonday sun in this book and certainly in other places. Now, will you notice as God continues to bring against the northern kingdom his judgment upon them, that is, he hands down a decision. He's going to judge them, and he has now proven to them his case, they broken the Ten Commandments. He went down the list, and they had broken them. Now he says, as they were, verse 7, as they were increased, so they sinned against me. In other words, as the nation increased, and God had promised to bless them by multiplying them. He told Abraham that. But all it did was just bring another sinner into the world. And after all, That's what happened when I came into the world. Just another sinner came into the world. But thank God, the grace of God reached down and somebody gave me the word of God and I was able to trust Christ as my Savior. But these people, they have an ignorance. They have no knowledge of the word of God. As they were increased, so they sinned against me. Therefore, will I change their glory into shame. Now, God says that he must judge the nation. And he says that he will change their glory into shame. Now, the glory of Israel was actually the temple with the Shekinah glory upon it and his visible presence with the nation and his definite leading of them. And their witness to the world of that day of monotheism. In a world of polytheism, they worship the living and the true God. That was their glory. It brought the Queen of Sheba from the ends of the earth. Now, what is happening is this. God says, I will remove my glory from you. I'll remove my blessing from you. And I will judge you. I'll let the enemy come in upon you and take you away. And, of course, the enemy's going to be able to say, look, they said they were God's chosen people, and look what's happening to them. And apparently their God's not a very strong God. Friends, we're seeing today in this land of ours something very similar to that, God is judging many churches, and he's closing many doors today. You can look about you in this land of ours and see that God is still judging. And we are inclined to say, isn't it a shame to see a decline in a certain church? Well, maybe God closed the door. We need to recognize that only God today can afford to judge his own people. And he does that. Now, will you listen? They eat up the sin of my people. They set their heart on their iniquity. They not only sin, but they like to brag about it. As a young fellow, ran with a pretty fast crowd in the bank I worked in. And my, we always liked, especially on Monday morning, to brag about our weekend, what we did. And you know what it was, either to get drunk or commit adultery or something like that. That's what you brag about. And they not only sinned, they bragged about it. And there, verse 9 now, chapter 4 of Hosea, And there shall be like people, like priests. The unfortunate thing is that the priesthood had sunk down to the level of the congregation. Now, I have always believed, and as you've heard me say, that I started out in the ministry. I wore a Prince Albert coat and a wing collar. I looked like a a mule looking over a whitewashed fence. But I soon gave that up. I dressed just like the man sitting out in the pew. And I'm no different than that man in the pew. But I want to say this, that I want in the pulpit to give out the Word of God so that I don't sink down to the level of that which is the man of the world. And today, there are many ministers. They're the good guys. One man boasted to me. He says, you know, he says, my preacher says, you know, he says, he comes out to our golf club. He plays golf, and I'm for that. I do that. I think it's great to mix with folk like that. He says, after the game, he says, he goes in the bar room with us, has a drink with us. Says, you know, he said, he's just one of the fellows. Says, I sure do like him. Now, well, I wonder what God thinks about him. Like people, like priests. And I'll punish them for their ways and reward them for their doings, for they shall eat and not have enough. In other words, famine is coming to the land. And who would ever have believed that this great land of ours, just last year, a few years ago, that there would be no scarcity? Who ever heard of it, that... You couldn't buy meat at the meat market. You couldn't buy bread. That there would be a scarcity of anything. And I say to you, I'm not sure. I think God judged us in the dust bowl many years ago. That's when I entered the ministry. And nobody listened to God then. Then we had to fight World War II. God judged us. And we didn't come back to God even World War II. So we've been fighting somewhere ever since. Just can't give it up. They shall eat, not have enough. They shall commit harlotry and shall not increase. You know, there's one thing, friends, about adultery. And I know today that I'm talking to a great many people that have had this in their mind, in their heart, because we're living in this day. And you can take it from a fellow that one time in his life, for he's saved, you can never... Never enjoy it in a way in which God really wants you to until you can enjoy it in marriage. And when you can put your arms around the woman (laughs) that you have been loving, and you can say to her, I love you above everything else in the world. May I say when you can say that, my friend, then there'll be an (laughs) increase. And it'll be wonderful. Oh, they were committing adultery then. And they're doing it today. But actually, there's really no satisfaction in it. It's just a sort of a temporary release. And you hate yourself after that. And I know that. And some of you know that, my friend. And God knows that because that's what he's saying here. God's spelling it out for you. They shall eat and not have enough, they shall commit harlotry, adultery, and they shall not increase because they have ceased to take heed to the Lord. Harlotry and wine and new wine take away the heart. Last time we gave you all these statistics about liquor in this country today, and nobody, and I mean nobody today, is lifting a voice against this. And I don't think I've said very much about it. But a sheriff said a whole lot the past couple of days, and from time to time we do mention it. Harlotry and wine and new wine take away the heart, my friend. And part of our problem in Washington today are these two sins harlotry, adultery, and liquor. They're the two problems in our government today. That's the reason that men lie. That's the reason that men will do crooked things. And that is not confined to one party or just one group. The whole crowd is guilty today. One writer said that in Washington, you don't know who to trust. May I say to you, what a sad commentary on our nation today. Don't tell me the new morality is working. It didn't work for Israel. They got away from the word of God, and they said, we'd try something new. And they went in for it. The northern kingdom, you see, they had sin galore. They put up two golden calves. And with that worship of Baal, that was connected with it, the grossest forms of idolatry and the grossest forms of immorality. Now, will you listen? Verse 12, my people ask counsel of their idols and their staff declareth unto them. For the spirit of harlotry hath caused them to err, and they have played the harlot departing from under their God. Now he's speaking here of the harlotry, spiritual adultery, which is turning from God. They went to inquire of idols. And today we find people running after the gurus of India. Well, they haven't done much for India, by the way. But yet, we've had a crowd running after them. And someone has said that one of them that came over here, he said that very candidly, he came for the money. And that it was nothing in the world but a religious racket as far as he was concerned. Yet people went after it. People are going off into this type of thing today. And there's actually the worship of Satan today. I have here a clipping that comes from Daytona Beach, Florida. A group of Satan cultists tortured and beat a 17-year-old youth to death believing he was an undercover narcotics agent, police said Wednesday. May I say to you that worship of Satan today is certainly not helping morality by any means. And these people going into idolatry, idolatry was leading them into gross immorality. Now, let me keep reading here. And they sacrifice, this is verse 13 now, chapter 4. They sacrifice upon the tops of the mountains and burn incense upon the hills under oaks and poplars and elms because the shadow of them is good. That's where they put their idols was on top of a hill under a grove. And you hear a great deal in Scripture And they found out today, archaeologists, that the center of worship, of idolatry, was in these groves. It was cool there, nice place to go. Therefore, your daughters shall commit harlotry, and your spouses shall commit adultery. You see, the worship of idols, and we today have turned to idolatry, covetousness. All of this today, the greed of this country today, has caused many a family to try to get on in the world. They want to move to a better neighborhood. They want a swimming pool. They want a boat to take down. And they say, we're doing this for their children. And then all of a sudden, their children take off. And there are thousands, thousands of young people today that are wandering up and down this country, And all over the world, I saw them in the Hawaiian Islands. I talked to three young people in Constitution Square in Athens, Greece. Two young men and a young lady. And I'm sure that none of them were beyond their teens. One of them could have been 20. And there they sat. And they were then under the influence of drugs. I tried to talk with them and I tried to find out who they were. And they said, we're nobody. We don't count. We've dropped out. What's happened today, friends? What's taking place today? Why, the problem is back there in the home. We're idolatrous. We're worshiping the almighty dollar. We've forgotten God. We've turned away from the living and true God, and we no longer worship him. And we've not turned to a Savior that can redeem us and help us. Now, verse 14. He says, I will not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry, nor your spouses when they commit adultery. For they themselves are separated with harlots, and they sacrifice with harlots. Therefore, the people that doth not understand shall fall. God says, "Ignorance so the law excuses no one. And because these people have gone off, I'm not going to judge them for the sin they're committing right now. I'm going to judge them because they've turned from the living and true God and from his way. My friend, as I said to a man, and I met him on a golf course, by the way, and he joined our foursome. He soon left us when he found out we were three preachers. And this man made a statement. Well, he said that he guessed that he was a sinner. He'd done this, that, and the other. said, yes, I guess I'll go to hell. And I said, brother, you know you're not going to hell because you commit these sins. He says, what do you mean? I'm not going to hell because I thought that's what you preachers said. I said, this preacher never said that. I said, you're going to hell because you've rejected Jesus Christ. These people were being judged not because they had become harlots. They were judged because they've turned from the living and true God. Now, will you notice he says here, though thou Israel play the harlot, Yet let not Judah offend, and come not ye unto Gilgal, neither go ye up to beth nor square the Lord liveth. God says, I'm going to hold Judah back. I'll not judge Judah yet. And Judah don't come up and worship these calves that they put up here. Now we come to something that's quite interesting. Verse 16. For Israel slideth back like a backsliding heifer, now the Lord will feed them as a lamb in a large place. Now, friends, let's look at what really backsliding is. A great many people think backsliding means that you have become a Christian, joined the church, and then you drop back into sin, and that's backsliding. Now, may I say to you, that's not backsliding the way it's used here. And God illustrates it so you can't miss it, for Israel slideth back like a backsliding heifer. Now, I'm very happy with the fact that as a boy, I had the privilege of living in the country and in a little town. And I think I've mentioned this before. There's a, lived next door to us in southern Oklahoma, in the little town we lived in, a rancher. He had a big ranch, and he had two boys. And they were both about my age, and we three played together. We used to ride these heifers out in the lot. And they would, you know, tie a rope around, as we said in that day, a belly band we'd put on them. We'd hold on to that. And then they'd buck us off. Now, every now and then, this rancher would load up. This was in the days before the automobile. In a wagon, he would load up these heifers to take them to market or take them out to the ranch. And he had a great big board, that is, it was a thing constructed out of boards that he'd put up at the back end of the wagon. and was a runway that you'd just try to run the heifer up there. Well, what did he do? You'd put a rope around the heifer, and then you'd push her from the back. And as you'd get the heifer up, she'd go up part of the way, then she'd stiffen those front feet. and She'd just put them out stiff. And you know what would happen? You couldn't pull her. She'd start sliding backwards. That's what backsliding is. Backsliding heifer. They were stiffening their front feet. And instead of being led of God, they were slipping backward all the time. And backsliding means when you turn your back on God and you stiffen that little neck of yours and that little mind of yours and you say, I'll have nothing to do with God. You're backsliding when you do that, you see. When you refuse to go the way God wants to lead you. Now, he calls Israel here a backsliding heifer. There are a lot of backsliding heifers today, and bulls also, by the way. Now, let me read the next verse. Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. Now, we come to another word here. The word backsliding is mentioned three times in this book. And you'll recall, it's only Jeremiah and Hosea. And they spoke to a nation ready to go into captivity. accused them of doing this. Refusing to be led to God. Refusing to come to God. Now, Ephraim, that name occurs 36 times. He picks out one of the tribes, of the 10 tribes in the north, and applies it to all 10 of the tribes. And I frankly, have never been able to figure out just how God uses that term. Is he using it in a way that is it a term of endearment or is it a term of ridicule? Now, this time through Hosea, I've come to the conclusion that it's a term of endearment. It's a pet name. You see, Israel in the north had really no name as a nation. Judah in the south was really the nation. And these ten tribes had revolted, you see. And now God gives them, I think, a pet name. And you'll find all the way through it, it'll occur 36 times, Ephraim. And he says this in, I would say, a longing sort of way, but with a note of finality. He says here, Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. God says there comes a day in a man's life, That if he keeps on being in a backslidden condition, refusing to listen to God, there'll come a day when God no longer can speak to that man. Now he says to them, your drink is sour. You'll become an alcoholic if you keep at it, brother. And it's not a disease, it's a sin. Their drink is sour. They have committed harlotry continually. Her rulers love shame more than glory. And the sad thing today is that we have men in government in high places instead of using a language that is clean and chaste. They love to cuss, and they love to drink. They love the shame more than glory. The wind hath bound her up in its wing. They're carried away by every wind of doctrine, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices." God says, I'm going to make them ashamed before it's over with. Now, friends, we've come to the fifth chapter of Hosea. And very frankly, this section here is not what you'd call a very happy section. Well, the reason that we find not a very pleasant section right through here is because of the sin of the northern kingdom, and the fact that judgment was coming upon them. Now, there are several things that we need to keep in mind, and I'd like to call your attention to them, because with that background, it makes this a more difficult section to understand. You must remember the background of the prophet, where everything that's being said is on the background of a prophet who, as a young man fell in love with, I'm sure, a lovely young lady. I'm sure she was beautiful. And then she became a prostitute. I imagine that the money and the fact that she probably would be able to get the luxuries that she could not have gotten up there in the hill country of Ephraim. So she went into the oldest profession It's known to mankind. And God sent this man to marry her anyway, in spite of that. He loved her. He married her. And I'm sure that it brought disgrace upon him. And then he had three children, and she went out again, played the harlot. And he went and bought her and brought her back to himself. He had a broken heart. He had a broken home. And with that background, he walks out into the nation, Israel, the northern kingdom, and says that God says that you're playing a harlot. You have been unfaithful to him. And I know exactly how he feels. He loves you. And he'll never let you go. But he's going to judge you because of your sin. Now, with that background, let's look here at chapter 5. And what we find here is that Israel plays the harlot. And we have now God and the faithless nation, Israel. Here in the fifth chapter, Israel turns from God altogether, and God turns from Israel, and deterioration within follows. Now, first of all, God condemns the leadership in the nation the priest and the king. Will you listen now to verse 1 of chapter 5 of Hosea? Hear ye this, O priests, and hearken ye house of Israel, and give ear, O house of the king, for judgment is toward you, because ye have been a snare on Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor. Now, Mizpah was in the southwest section of the kingdom, and Mount Tabor was way up in the northeast section of the kingdom. And actually, at this time, they were worshiping under every green tree. You'd find idols all over the land. And he goes on to say now, because of the fact that the priests and the king represented the leadership of the nation. And we've already seen as the people, so the priest. The priest doesn't rise any higher than the lowest in society. And he ought to be setting an example. And that's true of the king. Now, unfortunately, we're living in a day in our nation when... The leadership in the nation, the spiritual leadership and the political leadership is certainly not worthy of emulation, very candidly. Liberalism being predominant in theology and liberalism predominant today in politics and uh, news media that's altogether liberal, that actually is brainwashing the people. And you have the same situation that you have here. You have a spiritual deterioration and a deterioration and decline in a nation that will finally bring it to destruction. And that's what happened to this nation here and furnishes a pattern for us today. Now, verse 2, "...and the revolters are gone deeply into slaughter, though I've been a rebuker of them all." God rebuked them for their brutality. There was murder, there was violence, and then there was warfare. Now, may I say that I may take a little different position today than the average conservative, and will you listen to me very carefully? We have fought probably the most disgraceful war that was ever fought in Vietnam and in the Near East against the warnings of generals, who knew and who actually made a profession of being Christian, I think there were, like General Douglas MacArthur, that we should never fight a land war in Asia. We made a terrible military blunder by getting involved in that. And I believe that we made a terrible mistake and that it's tragic what's happened in that land. And the question still remains, did we help them? No. And I'm not sure, but what this is a judgment of God upon us and actually upon the white man. We have come through a day that's been called the white man's day, and it has been. At first, the sons of Ham didn't do any better. Egypt was under sons of Ham. So was Babylon and Syria, and those were great pagan nations. And then we find that the sons of Japheth call called the white man. And the white man has probably made the greatest blunder of all. And the great blunder is this. We had the Word of God. We had the Bible. And we didn't send missionaries as we should have sent. We didn't get the Word of God out to China. And God closed the door finally. And I say, God closed the door, not communism. And then the same thing has happened now in these nations. We didn't send Bibles over there, so we sent bullets over there and bombs. We didn't send men over there to give out the Word of God, so we sent boys to die on the battlefield. I don't know, maybe we ought to wake up today. Maybe we haven't reached the place where we can take God to the end of his universe and dismiss him and tell him we don't need him anymore. My feeling is that we're feeling the effects of the judgment of God upon us. And that's what happened to this nation. Now, that is a pattern for any nation, by the way. Now, he says here in verse 3, I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. In other words, God says, I know what I'm talking about. Because I know Ephraim, and I know Israel. And as we saw last time, Ephraim now is the name not only for just the one tribe, but for the whole ten tribes that's called Israel, the northern kingdom. And as I said last time, I'm not sure whether it's used in the framework of being a term of endearment and I rather think that, or whether it's really a nickname that he's giving actually of ridicule to them. I think it's really a term of endearment, but there's another reason. Ephraim was the very center of the idolatry. Now, the first golden calf that was set up by Jeroboam was in Bethel, and then later on, one was put in Samaria. And both of those places, I judge, are in the tribe of Ephraim. Now, I know that Bethel is probably actually in the tribe of Benjamin, but when the revolt came, this area went with the tribe of Ephraim and with the northern kingdom, so that the very heart of the idolatry is centered in Ephraim. And because of that, God gives that label to all of them because this is the very heart of idolatry and that was the great problem of the nation. That was the great sin of the nation of turning from God. Now he says, I know Ephraim. God knows what he's talking about. And Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, thou committest harlotry and Israel is defiled. That is, This calf worship, worship of Baal, that had been set up in this tribe had defiled all of the other ten tribes and even had its effect upon the southern kingdom. There's no question about that. So that the great sin was of a people who had the Word of God and who knew God and have now turned from Him and they no longer know Him and no longer worship Him. And as a result, Gross immorality, deterioration sets in, in every part of the nation, even the ecology of the nation. God said, even the animals, even the ground. And I think the curse of God is still upon that land. I can't see that a few little irrigated spots has made a desert bloom like the rose. If it does, then a rose by any other name smells just the same way And there are not many roses to smell in that land, even today, my friend. Now, will you notice verse 5, "...and the pride of Israel doth testify to his face. Therefore shall Israel and Ephraim fall in their iniquity." Now, God says, they're coming down. I'm going to bring them down. Judah also shall fall with them. He doesn't say at the same time, but he says, Judah finally will be brought down and both of these kingdoms were carried away uh, into captivity and at different times separated by about a century northern kingdom went to assyria southern kingdom taken to babylon and from that there has never been the return that the word of god speaks about as we've attempted to indicate And this book, I think, makes that abundantly clear, that when God brings them back, the world's going to know it, and there'll be peace in the land then. Now will you notice, he says also, verse 6, "...they shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek the Lord, but they shall not find him. He hath withdrawn himself from them." In other words, they have deserted God, and when trouble comes upon them... And they've tried every other resource. God is the last resource they've come to. Why? They won't find him. He's withdrawn himself from them. It's like years ago, the story is told. It's a whimsical little story that a ship was crossing the Atlantic and hit an iceberg, and this might have been the Titanic, I don't know. And the captain sent out the order all over the ship to prayers, to prayers. And... One woman aboard the ship came rushing up to the captain. She says, Captain, has it come to this? In other words, if you're going to pray, it's the last resort. And that's the way a great many people treat God. He is sort of like the spare tire. We hope we don't have a flat, but if we do, we've got a spare tire back there, and we'll put it on, but we hope we don't have to do it. And that was the condition of these people. And that's the condition of a great many people actually today that are making a profession of Christ. He's sort of an emergency measure. He's like a life insurance policy. He's a spare tire that you put in the trunk for the car, hoping that you won't have to use it. He's like a fire extinguisher that you have around. These are things that you just hope you don't have to use, but they're there in case the emergency arises. Now, he goes on here in verse 7. He says, "...they have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have begotten strange children." That is, they're strange to God. They didn't bring up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, in the discipline, and in the instruction of the Lord. And God had taught these people. Go back and read Deuteronomy again. God says you're to teach this to your children. You are to put it on your doorpost. You are to teach them. Even when you get in bed at night, you continue to teach them the Word of God. But he says, you've forgotten strange children. They don't know me. Now shall a month devour them with their portions. Blow ye the horn in Gibeah, and the trumpet in Ramah. Cry aloud at beth And Beth-Avon is Bethel. After thee, O Benjamin. And that... Part of the private Benjamin apparently had gone over with the northern kingdom. And as a result, why, the warning is to go out all over the land, warning the people. Now, we come to verse 9. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel have I made known that which shall surely be. In other words, it wasn't for the fact God had not warned them. He had warned them, and he had rebuked them, and they still would not hear. Verse 10, the princes of Judah were like those who removed the boundaries. Therefore, I will pour out my wrath upon them like water. In other words, the southern kingdom had attempted to apparently move its boundaries far north as it possibly could there Apparently, was always a real division caused by the fact they could not agree on just where the boundary was. And God has a message from Hosea even to the southern kingdom, but he primarily was the prophet to the northern kingdom. Now it goes on, and he's still using the term Ephraim, and as we said, it's used 36 times from beginning at the fourth chapter, on through this little prophecy here. And he says here, Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked after the commandment. That is, he willingly followed idols and the worship of the idols. He went with the crowd. Therefore will I be unto Ephraim like a moth and to the house of Judah like rottenness. Now, I think this is quite interesting, the figures of speech that the prophets use. And may I say, and I do not mean to make a play up on words, but there's a wonderful profit to you in studying the prophets because they reached out into nature and used certain figures of speech that are quite helpful in understanding the Word of God. Now, he says God's going to be under Ephraim like a moth. Now, what does a moth do? Well, he gets in your closet there, and if you don't have mothballs in there, and you heard about the fellow, went to the drugstore where he bought some mothballs, brought them back, and he said, these don't work. The druggist said, what do you mean they don't work? Well, he says, I stayed up half the night throwing these balls at the moths, and I never hit a one of them. Well, friends' malls are something you just don't want in the closet where your clothes are. Because in just one night, they can ruin a suit of clothes. They can ruin a very valuable garment, especially if it's a wool garment. Now, God says, I'm going to beat Ephraim like a moth. I'll judge him in a hurry. And to the house of Judah, I'll be like rottenness. It takes a board or a foundation of a house a long time to become rotten. God says to Ephraim, the northern kingdom, I'm going to judge you now. But the rottenness has already set in in the southern kingdom, and finally there will be the collapse, but it will take longer for that to take place. The foundations today are being removed in every way that's imaginable in our nation, and that which is left, rottenness has already set in. It may take a while, friends, but we just can't continue in sin like this. And it's enough to make us weep today. Now, will you notice, verse 13, he says, "...when Ephraim saw his sickness, and Judah saw his wound..." Now, you see, Ephraim sick, and sick nigh unto death. "...and Judah saw his wound." In fact, he got hurt, and was hurt at this time because Assyria came against him but didn't take him into captivity. "...then went Ephraim to the Assyrian..." and sent to king Jerob, yet could he not heal you, nor cure you of your wound? You went to a quack doctor. You thought that actually you would turn to the king of Assyria, and he'd help you. Well, he's the one who's going to take you into captivity. You've appealed to the wrong one, by the way. And here's another marvelous figure of speech that the prophet uses, draws it from out yonder in nature, "...for I will be unto Ephraim like a lion, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I'll take away, and none shall rescue him." Now, he said, first to Ephraim, I'm going to be a lion. But I'm just going to be a young lion, a lion cub, to the southern kingdom. Now, what does that mean? Well, it just simply means this. I was looking at television the other night at one of these nature pictures, and I enjoy them very much of how attempts being made throughout the world today to preserve the wild animals of the world, because many of them are becoming extinct throughout the world. They're suffering from man's sin. You may be sure of that. And so there's an attempt to preserve them. They showed lions, and this female lion, and how she protected her cubs. And these little fellas, they just look like l- great big, you know, roly-poly dog or a cat. And you'd feel like you'd like to have one as a pet. But, oh, that mother lion, she was vicious. When an animal came up near her, I tell you, she really went after that animal. Little old cubs, they just kept playing. Now, God says to the northern kingdom, I'm a lion I intend to destroy you now. But I'm just a cub lion to the southern kingdom. But what happens to a cub lion? He's going to grow up. And the day will come when he'll become just as vicious as mama lion was. And so the day's coming. It's a warning to the southern kingdom. You can see here, I'll be a young lion to the house of Judah. He says, I, even I, will tear and go away. In other words, God says, I'm going to let you go into captivity. And you can whine and cry all you want to. But God judges sin. And God does that today, friends. No one's really getting by with sin. We fail the young people today. And they've scattered throughout the world. You find venereal diseases in epidemic stages today. And they say, what in the world has happened? Well, I'll tell you what's happened. You don't get by with sin. God says you don't get by with it. And if you can get by with it, friends, you'll contradict the Word of God. But you're not getting by with it, because God can wait. He will judge sin. All right, until next time, may God richly bless you, my beloved.